And behold, there you will be. And in righteousness and holiness, you will judge and make war. We look forward to that day, Lord, that you come again. Until then, may we be found busy about your work. May we be uh, 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 light and salt to those that you uh, put us around in our workplaces, in the uh, colleges are back now, uh, in our neighborhoods, and wherever our paths may take us, that we might be careful to give you all the praise and glory and direct it all towards you. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. All right, everybody. Well, if you will take your announcements, we've got some big ones coming up. Uh, Ken's going to go over some of the things taking place next week. But if you'll notice, we've got the end of summer picnic. And that is going to be coinciding with our missions emphasis is going to roll out next week. Um, This is kind of last minute, but a bunch of things all came together so that we were able to uh, get some missionaries uh, to come and spend time with us. The Sanfords are going to be joining us uh, next week. So a lot of you knew that maybe for the picnic, but what we're going to be doing outside is we're going to have the worship as normal at 10 a.m. And then at uh, 10.40, we're going to come inside and they're going to give a presentation right in here for us. So, and it will be um, in all the other rooms. Uh, what word am I looking for? Thank you. Web stream, thank you. I'm not a techie kind of guy. I don't know what i do without Ken and others. Um, so it'll be uh, whatever room you're in, you'll be able to hear them. And then they're going to be joining us for the picnic afterwards. So you have to remember the picnic is next Sunday. Please make sure you sign up for that so we know how many chickens to order. And um, as you can see from there, there are no dishes to share. Very important. So please don't bring a dish. Just bring yourself and your smile and a drink with you, whatever you want to drink, okay? And so we're going to be rolling out the missions emphasis next week with the Sanfords. And then the following week, uh, we were going to have the Gregories. We were planning on that, but uh, his mom is taking a turn for the worse. So please keep the Gregories in prayer, okay? They'll be joining us probably the end of the month. And we'll turn it over to Ken. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and come right up here. All right, so a few announcements before I get into the word today, um, beyond what John just said, um, and that is, you'll see in your bulletin that there are some things coming up. We are coming into the fall, so things are coming back to normal. Uh, not really, but kind of. So um, next week, we are hoping to start our junior church program and our toddle time program. Uh, in order to make that happen, we do need volunteers. I will say more about that at our meeting afterwards, um, but if you want to volunteer for that, you can talk to me, but even better, there's an online sign-up that you can sign up on, and if you need that link, feel free to ask me. Um, other than that, Epic Kids and Epic Teens are coming up in about a month on September 20th. Uh, both of them are going to start. There's going to be a difference, though. Teens will be here uh, at the church, but uh, for our kids' ministry, at least for the start, we're going to do it online. And uh, there's lots of questions we're still working out with that, but I'll talk about that more at the meeting after as well. Saying that about the meeting, I just want to remind everybody, uh, if you have not heard this yet, we are having a meeting directly after service. We'll probably give about 10 minutes for people to, to move out if they, if they would prefer to go home. But then we'll start a meeting, and we're going to give some information on the building program. We're going to have a members vote on the flooring in the gym, and we'll have lots of information that we're going to share with you about what's coming in the fall in just here a couple weeks, really, as we get closer and closer to September. So if you can stay for that, if you're a member, that's great. Please stay, and you can vote. If you're not a member, please stay so that you can hear what's going on. We'd love to have you join us. Um, 
And so that is happening afterwards, and you will be hearing a lot of a lot more things after our service. Now, if you are online right now and you are listening, watching, um, we will record that meeting. And if you are a member, you will have the opportunity to vote up until tomorrow. Uh, so you can do that by either emailing the office or you can do that by calling the office tomorrow from 8 to 2. Uh, so that will be your option if you're watching us live stream. Okay. All right, so with that, uh, I know John already prayed, but if you'd join me real quick, just as a, for a short prayer as we ask the Lord to bless the, the reading and preaching of his word this morning. Lord, thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your protection, for your deliverance, and for your care for us. Pray today that you would guide us as we look to your word, that we would be changed as a result of what you've given us here, what you've told us, and God help us to to really take this to heart. God, allow your word to speak. Allow me not to get in the way. God, I just pray that you would bring truth to us this morning. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we've been this summer, and it is still summer, going through summer in the Psalms. Now we're to the point now we've only got two left, two Psalms left that we've chosen, uh, one this week and one next. Uh, and, uh, and then we'll be going on to a different series, which we'll be telling you plenty about. But uh, as we've been going through the book of Psalms, if you haven't been with us, because I know some of you, especially I see some college students who haven't been with us for a little while, we've been going through the book of Psalms, and we've picked out different Psalms, but there has been some general themes that have come out as we've preached. Um, and the first one is simple, that the Psalms, if you want to know what they are, they're, they are a collection of prayer songs. They are a collection of songs that were written mostly to God, some about God, but it's prayerful songs that were written so that Israel could take them and read them and find hope during exile. Uh, and today, we still can find hope as we look through the book of Psalms. Uh, another theme that's kind of developed is that there is joy in following Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, loving God. Uh, there is joy in following God, and that is a prevalent theme throughout the book. If you cannot read Psalms without coming the Psalms till you come to a point where you see that there is joy to be had in following and fearing the Lord. That is seen over and over again. Even though there are some really dark times in the Psalms, even though there's some laments and there's some times where it just feels like there is a depression and it's a heaviness, in the end of all of this, you will see, especially as you look at all of the Psalms from beginning to end, there is joy in following the Lord. And that is one thing that has come out again and again and again. Now, again, as we've been trying to show you too, as all the Old Testament points, not only, not only has truth for us to live by, but it also points us to Jesus. The same is true of the Psalms. Ultimately, the Psalms point to Jesus as being our ultimate hope and our ultimate deliverer. You might not see that right away, but all of these things have connections to the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, who would save the world from their sins. And that is the hope that was for Israel, and that is the hope that is today for us. And so that's a little bit of background as we've looked through the book of Psalms. Now we're going to be in Psalm 17 today, uh, and we're going to, we already read it in our singing service, we're going to read it in its entirety uh, in just a moment. And, uh, and actually... What we're going to do is read this, get us main point, and then we're going to break it down to three parts like we normally do. And hopefully by the end of this, we will see that God is the God who, who is the 
righteous judge, the righteous jury, and the righteous executioner. Have you seen the title of today's message? But join me now as we read through the chapter, as we read through Psalm 17, and then we'll say some things about it. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. All right, so this psalm has some kind of harsh words and harsh tone to it a little bit. And I think that's important for us to understand David's heart in all of this. And we will talk in a moment about the possible context that we find this in. Uh, and it's, a, it's really in a time where David is obviously feeling pressed and very stressed. He is feeling the danger that is surrounding him. Specifically, as we look at this psalm, it's going to be the danger of someone who is sinning against him, someone who is out to get him. Now, based on all of that and based on other studies, the consensus seems to be that this was most likely written during a time, or at least written as David looked back upon, the time when he was running from Saul. And if you remember when David was running from Saul, basically how it worked out was uh, Saul found out that David was going to be king and Saul was chasing him down, trying to kill him uh, so that that couldn't happen. And David's running around hiding in caves uh, and it's a really depressing, stressful, anxious, dangerous time of David's life. And whether it was this or maybe another time in his life when this was happening, uh, we can see that this was written out of a heart that was... Uh, you could say the word afraid, but a heart that was concerned, a heart that was uh, looking at the world and looking at what was happening and anxious about what to do. And then he comes to God in verse 17 as a prayer, as we're told right here before we even get to verse 1, a prayer of David. This psalm is a prayer that he prays to God, and we'll get to that in just a second. But the main idea that I want us to get from Psalm 17 is this. We need to ask God to fight our battles Ask God to fight your battles. And uh, as I said, this psalm is designated as a prayer. And it's designated as a prayer, and this word really is talking about an intervention. Uh, David is praying to God that he would intervene in what's happening in his life. 
David is begging for God's intervention in this time when he feels the stress, when he feels the danger, when he feels like there is people that are against him and he has enemies that want to seek his destruction. He finds that he needs to talk to God and ask him to fight his battle, and that's what David does. As I said, David is appealing to God during suffering and danger from the evil around him. And here's the key. Here's the key. David here in this psalm is very clear about who it is that he is asking for justice from. David is not playing the part of a vigilante. David is not sitting here saying, all right, I'm going to take things into my own hands and I'm going to figure out a way out of this. I'm going to avenge myself. I'm going to vindicate myself. I'm going to show that I'm right and I'm going to win a battle. David doesn't do that. David puts it in God's hands and says, God, this is what's going on. You need to be the one to work. And that's what David does. And I think that's something that we can learn from. As we go through this whole sermon, I hope what we see is that at times where we feel like our response and our responsibility uh, in life is to react and to fight back, to seek revenge or to seek to argue our righteousness, when we feel like we need to do that, then it's probably, almost always, a better opportunity, a better chance for you to just give it to God and say, God, I need you to prove, I need you to work, I need you to protect, I need you in this. And here's the thing, as we talk about judge, jury, and executioner, a lot of times we like to play that part. You know, that phrase is usually used of someone who exacts some kind of judgment or some kind of punishment on someone without any kind of due process. Uh, it's the idea of a vigilante, right? So uh, a vigilante that goes out and, and just finds justice for himself. Perhaps one of the most famous vigilantes, although not real, is Batman, right? So Batman, uh, he, was a, he was a superhero, and we talk about that, but really he's different than most superheroes in the fact that he is a vigilante. He, he goes out to do justice on his own. Uh, and uh, in that, it's interesting because we kind of root for that. Right? We root for the vigilante in a lot of times when we're watching things. Like, yes, that's right. You need to get back at the injustice of the world because nobody else is doing anything about it. So you need to go and you need to take it and you need to take it to them. respect it and kind of look at it as a high level of this is a good thing. But I'm here to say that judgment is never for us to pass and justice is not for us to carry out in the way that we often do, to get back at someone, to make sure that if someone harms us, we harm them in return. Or that somehow if somebody's doing something wrong to us or around us, that we need to figure out a way to show them what's right and punish them. That is not our job. That is not our goal. Even when we feel attacked so many times we want to attack back. We want to defend ourselves. And sometimes, I would say often, almost always, that's not the right response. If we're defending ourselves, let God defend us. Let God fight your battles. That's where we're going to go today. Uh, so I was thinking, uh, and I know I gave a little bit of an illustration, I guess, with Batman, but I was thinking of an illustration that would help us to understand God as the judge, the jury, and the executioner. And I haven't used a sports analogy in a long time, so I'm back to sports. So even though sports aren't happening, um, there is this idea in football specifically, if you've watched any NFL, you understand that if there's a bad call, if the referees make a bad call on the field, that there is a process in which you can actually have that call reversed. 
Uh, and so uh, what we've seen many times in football is there is a penalty that is done and somebody does something wrong and then it's not called and that person gets really, really angry. Specifically like pass interference, that's a big one, although that didn't really work with the challenge system. But let's just take something like that where the, the player gets upset because something's not called. And they're upset, they're yelling at the referee, maybe they're yelling at the other player, they're trying to prove their case, and the thing is, usually that never works. Now, what the NFL has tried to do then is put this in place where you can throw a red challenge flag, and then the referees actually get to watch the video, and then the video will tell them whether they made the right call or the wrong call, and most of the time then they'll get the call right. There's talk about, and in other sports they already have this thing, something called a sky judge. Someone that will be looking over the whole field and making sure that all the calls are always right. And the thing is, the players need to just put their playing in the hands of that judge that is going to make the right call. There's nothing good that comes from them from fighting the referee. There's nothing good that comes from fighting the player that committed the penalty against them. Many times we see that happen and nothing good happens as a result of that. Uh, perhaps one of the best examples of players taking things into their own hands recently is not with football, but is baseball. If you know anything about baseball, the Houston Astros cheated last year. Uh, they had this weird thing going on. And now what does every team want to do? Every team plays them and the pitchers are trying to hit their batters. They're throwing the ball to hit them on purpose doesn't make sense to me. What they're trying to do is say, ha, we're going to punish you for your cheating last year. And part of that's because they feel the league didn't do enough, but that really doesn't help anyone. Now, there's been bench-clearing brawls in the middle of COVID, which is interesting because they're supposed to stay apart, but yet they're fighting, but weird. So, but we see that happening, and nothing good comes from fighting for your own self in that sense, or trying to get justice, or trying to put judgment and punishment on someone for something they've done. Let the league take care of it if you're a baseball player. Let the sky judge, let the challenge system take care of it if you're a football player. And here's what I want to say today, even greater than all of that, is the fact that God is the greatest sky judge, if you want to call him that. He sees everything, he knows everything, and he always does what is right. Even in sports, a lot of times, even with the systems they have in place, they still get things wrong. But God doesn't. God is righteous. He is always right. He is always just. He is always the one that we should go to and know that he will judge fairly. And that's where we start as we look at verses 1 through 9. We're going to see that David starts by saying that God is the righteous judge. God is the righteous judge. He calls upon God and he says, I'm praying to you, I'm calling to you. And he says, hear a just cause, O Lord. This, this phrase here talks about righteousness. And David is calling upon God's righteousness and his righteous judgment. This idea of a just cause. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. And that's the first thing we see. David appeals to God as the one who vindicates. As the one who vindicates. Who makes something clear. You know, vindicate is when you have done nothing wrong and yet you're accused of something. And then you are vindicated in the sense that you are seen to be innocent of that accusation. David's emphasis on righteousness here in verse 1, and then also later on in verse 15 he talks about righteousness, reminds us that God is the righteous judge. Not just a judge, but a righteous judge. A judge that will always do what is right. God will see what is right and make the right judgment. 
God will give David a fair trial. That's what he's saying here in these first few verses. David understands that God is the one who vindicates. He will give a fair trial. He will see what is right. Because obviously David is being accused and being uh, put down and being judged and trying to be killed, as we'll see later. And all of that, David is saying, God, you know what is right. You know my heart. David trusts in God's righteous judgment. And so my question for us is, is do we trust in God's righteous judgment or do we feel like we need to take it into our own hands? The next thing David does in this section is he appeals to God as the one who tests. God is the one who tests. And he says in verse 3, you have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me, and you will find nothing. David's testing, or God's testing, proves David's integrity. Uh, now, if you remember back to when we preached on the book of James, uh, Pastor Justin mentioned this, and I had also talked about it in one of the sermons that I preached, but we talked about testing And we talked about the testing of faith, and we said a test is there to bring out what's already in you. It's not to add anything extra to you, but a test is really where you see what really is inside. Like, if you're taking a test in school, like, it's not going to give you more knowledge if you take a test, but what it will do is show what knowledge you already have. And the same is truth here. What is same is true here of what David is saying is saying, God, you have tested me, and now you know what's inside. You've seen my heart. He says, you have tried my heart. It's interesting that he says that. He says, from the very inner part, you've seen everything. So he talks about his heart. Then he goes on and says that his mouth will not transgress. And finally, that he has avoided the ways of the violent. David is saying, look, not only is my heart pure before you and innocent before you, but also my mouth has been innocent before you and my actions have been innocent before you. And what is David's test? Well, as I said earlier, this is most likely he's running from Saul. And if this is the case, which I believe it is, if you look at the story of when Saul is pursuing David, you will see that David did some very strange things. As he's running from Saul, God has already told him, David, you're going to be king. As he's running from Saul, he has opportunities to not only speak ill of Saul and to speak badly of him to others, but he also has opportunity to actually kill Saul. If you remember the story where Saul's in the cave relieving himself and and David cuts off a piece of his robe to show how close he was. But he didn't take Saul's life. He could have. He chose not to. He was not violent. He did not use his words even. He did not disrespect Saul. He knew that God. he was God's anointed for that time and he respected him as such. And so we see that even in this test, when David is talking about his heart and his mouth and violence, it makes sense if this is what he's talking about that he has been innocent in these ways. Now, again, we got to make very clear here, as we talk about innocence, this does not mean that David has never sinned. does not mean perfection. We talked about integrity several weeks ago, and it's about running to God and running away from sin, and that's the pattern of our life. And David is talking here about a pattern. He's talking about the fact that this is not perfection, but this is integrity. This is faithfulness. And we see that David is not boasting of perfection, but he is talking about the faithfulness that he's had to God. This isn't arrogant. This is just a statement of fact. He knows that he's been doing what is right because he's been following what is right. And the interesting thing here is how had David remained faithful? He doesn't take credit by himself for himself. 
What does he say? He says, my steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. He says that, but then we go back and he says in verse 4, with regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. David is very clear here that this idea of innocence that he knows that he has before God does not come of his own work, but by the word of God. He has followed God's word, he has trusted God's word, and therefore he sees himself as faithful. And so as faithful as he is, he knows that God is going to do what is right, that God has tested him, and that he has passed the test. And so he makes sure here that before he even prays about his enemies, notice in a minute he's going to pray about God having vengeance and justice on his enemies. David says before any of that, you, God, have tested me to make sure that there is nothing in me that is the problem here. I am not causing the problem. This is something that is being done to me. And he is cleared because God is the righteous judge who vindicates and now tests David. Many times during our hard times in life, this is what God is doing. He is testing us to see if we will remain faithful. And we've looked at that at James, so I'm not going to talk about that anymore. Go back and listen to the James sermons if you have any more questions about that. Finally, David not only appeals to God as the one who vindicates, the one who tests, but also the God who loves. The God who loves. Uh, What we see here is he says in verse 7, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of all those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. In all of this, David says, God, you're the righteous judge because you vindicate, you test, and you love. This is the the point of the testing and the point of the vindication is not for the good of David. It is for God to show his love. Watch this. Wondrously show your steadfast love. David wants God's grace and love to be on display. He wants it to be on display. And it's interesting that David would be thinking back to all the previous times that God had showed up. Think about the Exodus, and you think about all that he had done for Israel at this point, and David is saying, God, you need to prove yourself, show yourself, show your love to this world, be glorified in your love as you vindicate, as you test, your love will be seen. Here's the truth that we can gather from here. He calls God the savior of those who seek refuge. David understands again that his ultimate hope is not in his innocence, but his ultimate hope is in God's love and mercy. That is David's ultimate hope during this time of testing, during this time of danger. He understands that the only thing to run to is God's love. He talks about his innocence, but it's not about his innocence. It's about God's love and his faithfulness, his steadfast love, that love that is loyal love that will not leave David. And he knows that that's true, and he's calling upon God to show that love to the world. And so we see that God is the righteous judge because he vindicates and he tests, but he does all of that because of his love and his faithfulness. In the next section here in verses 7 through 11, we see that God is the righteous jury. Uh, God is the righteous jury. Now, obviously, he's not 12 people sitting in a box, uh, but what is the point of a jury? I want you to think about that for a minute. Uh, The jury in the court of law is actually there for the person who's been convicted, for the person who's been accused. The jury is there as a layer of protection so that the judge can't just do whatever they want, so that a vigilante can't just do whatever they want, but it is actually a right that is given to us that when we are tried, we have the right to a trial by jury because that jury is there to preserve a protection for the person who's accused, that there wouldn't be corruption. That's the hope and that's the point. 
And the whole thing we see here is that God, in that very sense, is one who protects the accused. He is one who protects us when we're accused by others. So David starts in verse uh, 6. Actually, we'll go back one more verse than I thought. But he says, I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. David starts by appealing to God as the one who hears. By appealing to God as the one who hears. You see, David already knows that sin is not in the way. In Psalm 66, 18, uh, and other verses throughout Scripture, it talks about how God will not hear if sin is in our life, in the sense that if there is unrepentant, unconfessed sin in our life, then God won't hear what we're asking for. But David doesn't have to, isn't concerned about that because he's already talked about the fact that God had tested him and he was seen to be faithful. And so now David says, now that I am, I've been tried and I am faithful. You've given me a fair trial. Now, God, you listen to me. I know you will listen to me. This is not a demand, but this is a confident expectation that God hears. So the understanding is before we even go to God, we must look at ourselves and make sure we're not part of the problem. David already did that. But David has confidence that the fact that God and hear this word for God. By the way, this psalm starts with, O Lord, Yahweh, that that covenant-keeping, that God who loves us with hesed love, and, and he started with that, and now he mentions God, he calls him El. And a lot of times that is the word that talks about the creator God, the almighty God. And what David is saying is, your love, O God, you will hear me, O God, the creator of the world, the almighty God, the one who has control and dominion over all things, that king, that, that incredible person is someone who will listen to little old David. He is also someone who will listen to little old you and little old me. Because God loves us, and the mighty one who created this world listens to our prayers. Now, that should humble you, but it also should give you great confidence in knowing that God's love is that deep, that the creator of the world listens to your prayers. And David knows that God is listening, and he continues to pray. So what does he pray for? David appeals to God as the one who protects. He talks about, O Savior of those who seek refuge, in verse 7, from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who will do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. David is in a place of real danger. He feels that there is a real problem that he is going to be uh, destroyed. And we're going to look at that in a moment. But in the midst of that, David doesn't try to protect himself or run away or fight back. David asks God to protect him. And we see that with this idea of refuge. We've talked about refuge before. It's a place we can go to be protected from evil. But then he talks about the apple of your eye. And also the hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now, many times we don't necessarily think about these phrases, what they actually mean. The apple of your eye is talking about the pupil. That's how the Bible talks about it. And if you think about your eye, it's super, super sensitive. Like if you get a speck of dust or if you get a little scratch in there, uh, it'll cause all sorts of problems. And so it's very important that you protect your eyes. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I took my dog to the vet who had some, an eye problem. And the vet said, this is very important that you take care of this because if not, the dog could lose half her eyesight. And the truth is the same for us. And we need to protect our eye because it's so precious. It is also so sensitive. And David is saying, keep me as the apple of your eye. Protect me. Protect me as you would protect one of the most sensitive, important organs of the body. And that is the imagery here. 
And also then he goes on and talks about the shadow of your wings. Maybe you've seen this before where a bird, a mother bird, will cover their young with the wings to protect them from weather, to protect them from enemies, to protect them from danger. And God, God is being said, he said, you're not only, please treat me like the apple of your eye and cover me with your wings. That's what David is saying. When I'm surrounded, when the wicked want to do me violence, when I'm going to be hurt, God, would you protect me? And that's what he prays for. Now, we don't have time to go back and look at this, but in Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 11, Moses actually uses these exact same two phrases. Moses, in Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 11, talks about how God protected Israel uh, as the apple of his eye and in the shadow of his wings. So no doubt, as David is thinking about this, David is going back and thinking about what God did for Israel through the whole exodus. And if you think about what God did, God protected them in ways that were miraculous, And the whole world knew that God was protecting the people of Israel. From the Red Sea crossing to, even before that, the plagues, where God had protected his people from the plagues. We see that God is a God who protects, and David remembers that, and David prays for that. Then not only, so as we talk about this jury, the jury hears the case. God hears us. The jury protects the, the person who is accused. God is protecting us. And finally, David appeals to God as the one who convicts. Just as a jury is the one who will decide to convict that accused person of a crime, God is also the one who will convict the evildoers of sin. Verses 10 through 12. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a lion, a young lion lurking in ambush. And then in verse 13, which we'll talk about more, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. In these three verses of 10 through 12, David gives a list of things that are sinful. Uh, there's no real debate about this. They, they don't have pity. They are arrogant. They are looking to destroy, and they are looking to tear, to ambush, to destroy God's anointed. Keep in mind that David is the anointed king, and he is going to be, they are trying to destroy him. So they're not just attacking David, they're really attacking God in a very real sense. And David points out the sin of his enemies. He includes their violence and their evil intentions. And the understanding of why David would bring those up is because he knows then that God will confront those sins. So he's praying for protection, but he's also praying, really, for justice. He's praying for judgment. He's praying that God will take these sins and deal with them. But again, David's not taking this into his own hands. God, he is going to God, and he's asking for him to do these things. So God is the righteous judge. God is the righteous jury. God is also the righteous executioner. Now, keep in mind, when I say executioner, this does not just mean killing. Okay. Now, in this passage... We actually do see this imagery of by your sword. And, and there's, a, there's a truth that David is praying that God would bring an actual end to them, uh, that death would come. But that's not the whole point about executioner. An executioner, really, if you look at the definition, is just one who executes justice or one who executes judgment, one who, edu- who executes punishment. And that is the idea See, not only is God the one who judges righteously and also protects us and convicts righteously, but he also executes justice righteously. He does what is right. He brings justice that is right. Even if we don't understand it, if we don't think it's just, he knows it's just because he's right in everything. And so David knows that. In verse 13 through uh, the end of this psalm, he brings this up and he says, God, you are the one who is the executioner. 
See, David, first of all, appeals to God as the one who confronts. He says, O Lord, he says, Arise, Yahweh, confront him. David pleads with God to confront the sin of evildoers, to, to, to go at them and to confront it and to say no more. That's what he's asking for God to do. And then, the next thing, David appeals to God as the one who subdues. He says, confront him and subdue him. Not only to come and say, this is no longer going to happen, but to subdue. And the imagery here is to actually, to push down, to, to, and there's even some imagery here that talks about how you would push a lion down to the ground. And it's this idea of pushing down and stopping the violence. Remember, a lion was after David, as he says in his imagery, and he says, God, put that down. Subdue that lion. Subdue those people. And finally, David appeals to God as the one who delivers. So he says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord. So here, David calls out for deliverance. He says, God, would you confront the sin? Would you subdue the sinner? And would you deliver me from their hand? Would you deliver me from the punishment that they want to execute upon me? Again, because you've tried me. And because you're protecting me, now would you execute judgment on them? Would you then deliver me from them? David asked for deliverance from evil people. And he talks about evil people. And then there's this, this last section of the book. That we could end at verse 13 based on the, the, the outline. But then he talks about who these men are. He says, who are you confronting, Lord? Who are you going to subdue? Who are you delivering me from? And he talks about who these men might be. And he says this, by men by your hand, O Lord, the men from the world whose portion is in this life. Or you might read in your translation, whose portion is in this world. Which is a really good translation. For you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. Who are the people that God is confronting, subduing, and delivering David from? It's people who are men of this world that are looking to find blessing in this world. Basically, in other words, they are looking to build up themselves, to build up a kingdom for themselves. This kind of does make sense if you think about Saul. Wasn't that his problem? Saul wouldn't listen to God, but instead continued to do his own thing because he wanted to build his own kingdom, because he wanted to make himself great. And David says, these are the people that I need to be delivered from, the people who have made this world their hope. And he even talks about some specific, oh, sorry, specific things. He says, you fill your womb with tread, that you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. It's interesting that David would choose these things. And he also gives God credit where credit is due. Now I'll tell you, maybe in your translation it might read a little bit different because there is some question on translation here about what this actually is talking about. Is this section talking about the evil people or is this section talking about good people? Because it looks like this is good stuff. You know, God's filling their womb with treasure and they're satisfied with children. He's giving them abundance and he's giving them families. This is good, so therefore this must be about good people. But as you look at the construct of this psalm that doesn't make sense... Because here in verse 15, David says, as for me, and that's a comparison term. So he's kind of saying, this is what one thing is, and now this is me. And so if he's comparing, he's going back and comparing to the evil people that he's asking God to confront. And what he says is, look, God, I know that you're filling them with treasure, and you're giving them children. But then, but then it says, and they leave their abundance to their infants. And I think that's the key phrase. What David is basically saying is, everything they accumulate in this world, once they're gone, they're gone. And all that that stuff does is pass on to the next generation. There's no, there's no eternal 
treasure. There's no eternal consequence here. It's all about the temporary. Build up my life now, and then I'll give it to who's behind me, and that's what life is all about. But then David says, wait a minute. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David says the opposite of the evil person who is trying to bring him harm, that is all about them and building up their wealth and building up their family just to pass it on and it's temporary. David goes to the eternal and he says, but as for me, what's important to me, what matters to me is that I will behold your face again in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness with seeing you and being with you. Temporary blessing may come to the men of this world, but David looks to the eternal blessing of the presence of God, and that brings his ultimate satisfaction. Wealth and family doesn't bring lasting satisfaction, real satisfaction, eternal satisfaction. It's simply left behind. What brings real satisfaction, what brings real joy, what brings real fulfillment in life is only God's presence, and that's what David is saying. And he's saying, all this bad stuff that's happening to me, and it looks like good things are going well for the people that are doing these things to me, but God, I know I have what's really important and what really matters. I think this is instructive to us. As we think about David and we think about how he is responding to the danger, when he's responding to people who are coming against him, he puts his hope in what needs to be put in, and that is God himself. He asks God to be the righteous judge, the righteous jury, the righteous executioner. He doesn't think, take things into his own hands. He doesn't become a vigilante. He trusts God. He goes with God's word. He trusts God's word. He keeps from violence. And he allows God to do what God do, does best, which is to execute justice. That is who God is. That's what he does. And we can trust that he is the one who is just. He is the one that's going to bring justice. I think too many times in our lives when we're offended or when we're, we're attacked or when things aren't going well for us and we find ourselves in danger, we try to figure out a way out of the danger or we try to fight back. We try to defend ourselves to a point where it just exhausts us. And in that whole time, we never think just to say, God, would you vindicate me? God, would you protect me? God, would you execute justice? That's the prayer that we need to be praying just as David prayed it here. Let's not be a people who are so quick to be vigilantes. Let's face it, there are people in this world that are always going to be against us. They're going to say evil things about us. They're going to even seek our destruction at times. Because they've made their God this world. And we have a different God that is so much better than the world around us. But that's going to be different, and so people are going to come against us. And when we do, how are we going to handle that? Are we going to try to to armor up and to say, all right, it's time to fight. Or are we going to say, God, would you protect? Would you vindicate? Would you execute justice? This is not our job. This is his. I'm not saying that we don't confront sin. We have to confront sin, especially in our body. If we see sin in our body, we need to confront that. I'm not saying that we need to tolerate sin outside of our body and say, well, I just won't say anything because I don't want to be seen as vindicating. But I am saying that do not buy into the world standard of what you should do when you feel like you're violated by going and fighting back. Don't be the player on the field who screams at the referee, but instead be the player who trusts in the sky judge. That's what we can do. So there are some practical implications as we look at Psalm 17. But now let's conclude this morning. As I said at the beginning in the the introduction, all these psalms point us to Jesus. 
And because of time, I'm not going to look up all these verses that I'm going to mention. But if you are taking notes, please write these verses down. Look them up later. You can verify that they're actually saying what I say they're saying. The first thing I want to talk about is, do you know Jesus, the righteous judge? Do you know Jesus, the righteous judge? God is the righteous one, and Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what we know to be true. So do we trust him? Do we know him? Here's some interesting things as we think about the book of Psalms, and we think about Psalm 17 specifically. Uh, Jesus, we see, is actually the ultimate example of the innocent one who endured the scorn of sinners while remaining faithful to God. We see that in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 talks about what Jesus had to suffer at the hands of sinners. Hebrews 5, 7 talks about the fact that God heard Jesus' prayer because he was faithful through tests. Sounds very familiar to what David is talking about. David is talking about being faithful through the test and being heard by God. That's what we're told about Jesus. Jesus was innocent of all things. He lived a perfect life with no sin, no rebellion. And so then it comes time uh, for him to give his life on the cross and he was able to die for our sins, to pay the punishment that we deserve for our sin, for all the times that we've rebelled. And he endured this hostility from sinners, not only did they beat him, not only did they uh, persecute him, but they ultimately killed him. And Jesus submitted to that, remaining faithful through the whole time and putting everything in God's hands throughout that whole situation. And so we see that to be true, but the truth then is even so much greater. Yes, he was the innocent one who was killed, but he also is the one who can deliver us, who can save us from sin. Because he didn't stay dead. What sinners tried to do, they tried to put him down. But yet he rose again three days later. And the hostility that he had from sinners, he proved that that had no power on him. And he rose again. He showed his power over sin, over death, over this world. And he says, now, through my death and resurrection, you can be delivered. The righteous judge who delivers, Jesus does that. He did that through his death, his resurrection, through his perfect life. And then what we do in response to that is say, Jesus, I want to trust you. You are the righteous one who went through all of this. And so therefore, you are the only one who can deliver me. You went, you were the innocent one that was killed at the hands of sinners so that I did not have to experience death, eternal separation from the goodness of God. And now Jesus says, just come to me in faith. Trust in me. Don't trust in yourself. And isn't that even clearly seen in how we handle when we're attacked? Because if we trust ourselves when we're attacked, we're going to fight back. But if we trust in God, we will put it in his hands. And so, if you don't know Jesus, that's what he's done for you. He died, he rose again, he's waiting for you to respond to him in faith and turn to him and trust him in your life. And if you haven't done that, today is the day. Just come to him and trust him with your life, with your heart, to, give, to find forgiveness, to find vindication, to find all the things that we seek. It only comes through Jesus. And the fun, the, the fun thing, the great thing, the wonderful thing is that once we know Jesus, we're told in Romans 8.34 that Jesus is the one who is intervening for us even now. Remember, this is a prayer of David. David is praying to God and it's an intervention that he's asking for. And we're told in Romans 8.34 that Jesus is our intercessor and it's the same idea. It's this idea of intervening on our behalf, praying for us. As David prayed to God, Jesus prays to God, but he's not praying to God for himself, he's praying to God for us. 
and his prayers go up and he is intervening for us before God the Father. And then we see this other truth throughout Scripture. Acts 17, 30 through 31 says it very clearly. Again, that's Acts 17, 30 through 31. says that Jesus is the one who will judge the world in righteousness. It specifically says that. That Jesus is the one who will judge this world in righteousness. So here's the deal. If you don't know Jesus, one day he is going to be the righteous judge and he will do what is right. He will execute justice on this world. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have not placed yourself in him, if you have not trusted in him, then sin has to be punished. And that punishment will come as he judges the world and he does what is right. He will not let sin slide by. Just like a good, just judge wouldn't let a crime go unpunished. Jesus will punish all sin But the truth of the matter is, if we know Jesus, that sin has already been punished in him. He's not only the perfect judge, but he's the perfect one who has already taken the punishment if we will just trust him for that. Don't find yourself at the end of this age with Jesus being the one who is judging all things, not having accepted the punishment that he took upon himself for you. That's not a place any of us, any of us will ever want to be. So please, trust in Jesus today. As we look at Psalm 17, it points us that way. David was an example of an innocent person being accused and under extreme pressure. Jesus fulfilled that for us. A couple questions then to to close with. Are you feeling that life isn't fair? Pray for justice. You know, so many times we feel like this life isn't fair, that we are treated unfairly, that we're accused of things that aren't right. We can get really upset. We can fight back. We can think that we are owed something by God because life doesn't feel fair. Here's the thing. Instead of fighting to try to make things fair, pray for justice. The idea of fair is an interesting word anyway because we don't really understand what we deserve because if we wanted fair, that wouldn't be good for us. So instead, we pray for justice. Jesus paid for justice on the cross for those who believe in him. But he also gives out justice not only at the end of time, but also now. So pray for justice. Are you facing danger or despair in your life? Pray for protection. Don't try to figure it out on your your own. Don't try to hide or protect yourself. Trust in God. He's the one who protects. So pray for protection. Are you tempted to fight back at those who are against you? Are you tempted to take things into your own hand, to be a vigilante? Are you tempted to do that? I think all of us at times are whether it's uh, people that we know well, or even if it's someone that we don't even know, but they're, they're doing something that is harming us, or we perceive that it's harming us, so many times we just go into fight mode. Instead, let God fight your battles. Pray for vindication. Don't be a vigilante. Because here's the thing. The reason that vigilantism is such a big deal in, like, in, in, in movies and things like that is because we have a corrupt law system that sometimes doesn't punish the way they should. And so people think, oh great, let's get a vigilante that will go and execute the right judgment. But here's the thing. Even all those vigilantes don't have perfect justice. The law doesn't have perfect justice. There is one who has perfect justice. That is God. 
And so it doesn't work for us to fight for justice in that sense, to fight for ourselves, to fight our battles. Let him fight the battle because he is the right judge. He is the right jury. He is the right executioner. He will always do what is right. So pray for vindication. Pray that God will step up on your behalf. And the truth of the matter is, throughout Scripture, we see that he will. And maybe in this life, this life is still going to be hard and it's still going to be stressful. You're still going to have people come against you. But what did David have to look forward to? Let me read it one more time. And let this be all of our thoughts and all of our prayers as we go through this world. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. That needs to be our hope. That needs to be our prayer. Not in anything else, not in our own warped view of justice. But let us behold his face in righteousness. Let us be satisfied with his likeness. With that, I'll pray. And after I pray, I'm just going to give a few instructions regarding the meeting that's about to happen. But let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a God of perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect goodness. God, that you execute judgment and justice better than we can, we can ever do because you do it perfectly. Lord, help us not to take things into our own hands and fight for ourselves and fight against people and be known as fighters God, let us just trust you. Let us put ourselves in your hands. That we would trust you for protection. That we would trust you for vindication. That we would trust you for ultimate deliverance, Lord. You have promised it and you have given it to us through Jesus. And now we just have to live that out. And we just thank you for that that you've given us. Help us. Help us, Lord, to truly think and feel and live in the way that David ended this psalm. God, help us all to behold your face in righteousness. Help us all to be satisfied with your likeness, Lord. Help that be what we care most about. I pray all this today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in just about...